selection, which bubbled and brewed for a few weeks before, just prior to midterms. Two women who lived at Radcliffe came to the Dean of Students' office with an official objection. The Dean, a perpetually irritated man named Bob Stasek, had been at Webster since his own undergraduate days, had swiftly dropkicked the matter to Naomi, whether as chair of the Women's Studies Department or as Dean of Women's Affairs, she was never sure. Not that it mattered. Bob's distaste for the situation was plain. Indeed, he acted as if he'd been personally asked to dig bloody tampons out of the Radcliffe Hall toilets. And Naomi, who until that time had been so under-involved in matters of college administration that she routinely spent her time in meetings surreptitiously making to-do lists, understood that this particular bell was tolling for her. And she had to admit, no one on campus was remotely as well-prepared to address the issue at hand as herself a tenured professor of women's studies and gender studies, and author of the respectably read, for academic nonfiction, Divide and Conquer, Femaleness and Feminism in the Women's Movement's Second Wave. Nell Jones-Givens, the sophomore with the enviably low housing lottery number, had by her own account, published eventually on Slate, and later wildly misquoted by Laura Ingram and other right-wingers, been grappling with gender dysmorphia since early childhood, and by the age of 12 had accepted that she was essentially a male person misplaced in a female body. Her efforts to delay menses and mash her breasts flat against her ribcage, her unsuccessful attempt to run with the men's cross-country team at her suburban Illinois high school, and her attainment of peace within her family on these issues had also been the subjects of her admissions essay to Webster. Hence, though admissions did not routinely share such material with the administration, the college could not claim to have been ignorant of the implication of Nell's housing selection. Over the summer that followed her freshman year, Nell had legally changed her name to Neil in her home state of Illinois. Official gender designation was a bit thornier, which only added to the mayhem once the whole mess began to roil. She was a woman, genetically. She was a man, spiritually. She had been admitted to Webster as a woman. She was a man by temperament, by choice, by fate, by all that was holy. Except to those few poor evangelical Christians on campus who asserted that whatever else she was, she was far from holy. She was a member of a gender designation that had expanded beyond patriarchal structures to assume a spectrum of identities, of which Neil's was simply one among so many. She was a knowing invader of the only female-designated safe space on campus and a debaser of femaleness itself due to the incomprehensible fact that she had been given the gift of being female and had chosen to decline it. She was, well, at the end of the day, what she was mattered far less than what she was not. She was not a woman, by her own account. She was also not remotely ready for what was about to happen to her. Webster was not ready. And Naomi certainly was not ready. It had been a slowly unfolding, lovely, and uneventful fall. That hadn't helped. All began well enough at Radcliffe Hall. Neil had made a friendly announcement about his new name at the first sharing circle meeting in September and generally assumed his uncomplaining share of the cooking, cleaning, and upkeep of the house. He prepared exotic teas for his housemates from a large personal collection and frequently loaded the dishwasher even when it was not technically his turn to do so. He tutored two of the women on his floor who were struggling in Japanese, 
Neil was fluent having spent a gap year in Kyoto, and maintained the Radcliffe Hall Facebook page, soon to be inundated with vitriol from the world at large. But slowly, the situation began to fester. There were the hormones, little ampules of injectable testosterone in the first-floor bathroom. For one junior girl in the house, the needles themselves were triggering traumatic flashbacks to a childhood bout with leukemia, but that was a separate issue. There was the clomping presence of an increasingly hairy, increasingly muscular person in the hallways and on the stairs, taking up space, said the needlephobe's roommate, in that indefinable yet obvious way men did everywhere in the world. And finally, there was the boyfriend, a slim-hipped fiddler who claimed to have dropped out of Webster because it wasn't academically rigorous enough and who now worked at one of the coffee bars downtown. And this... Naomi would come to understand, was the most incendiary of all the resentments engendered by Neil Jones-Givens.